The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Please remain standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. First Baptist Church of Crosby, hear the word of the Lord. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Father, your servants anxiously await. So we ask you now to speak. We commit as a people, Father, that we will hold your word in the utmost authority. Your word is right. Your word is true. Your word is light and life. So while you're going to do the work this morning, Father, you're going to do the speaking and you're going to enable the hearing. Our commitment is to rest in this, not to go seek some other word or some worldly counsel, but to rest in this word that you have given us, trusting that it is more than enough. So again, Father, we ask you to speak. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, return to your feet. We are... I believe for the final time, we're in the second chapter here of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we will read verse 11 all the way through the end of the chapter. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now God's people said, Amen. So as you surely know by now, the Apostle Paul is presenting to us here a progression. It's, it's a number of pictures to give us a pretty well-rounded view of who the church is, but with each new picture, there's an increase further up and further in, in terms of our communion with God, our intimacy with God, and our responsibilities before Him. In addition to this, he's showing us a deeper sense of intimacy and communion amongst the brethren here in the church. So I remind you what I've tried each week to remember to say, and that is that what the Apostle Paul has to say here about this global, invisible, universal church is not just about that, but it's also about each true local congregation just like ours. That's why he concludes this chapter with, in him you also, you saints in Ephesus, you saints in Crosby, Texas. Everything that is true of the global church must be true of any local congregation if she is to be the church. And so you remember the progression of the pictures. We began in chapter 1 being told that we are the body of Christ. When we come to chapter 5, we're going to be told that we are the bride of Christ. He then moved on to talk about the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. No longer strangers and aliens, no longer exiles. Not foreigners that just live amongst the people of this kingdom where we, we blend in. We eat the same food, we like the same music, we catch all the same jokes but that we're full-fledged citizens with all the rights, all the responsibilities that come, not just to Christ Jesus, our King, but to one another. So that if war breaks out, we're in this together. We don't choose other sides, it's us. We are members of the kingdom of God. Now, if we had stopped there, if Paul had stopped there, we might have found ourselves in a place very similar to where the apostles were even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember that it was there upon that mountain where they asked him, Will you at this time now restore the kingdom of Israel? I'm afraid that in their minds, even after all that they had seen, that prior to Pentecost, they still didn't quite understand the reality that this kingdom that Christ came to bring, it wasn't a national kingdom, it wasn't a political kingdom, it wasn't the kind of kingdom that's taken by force. That he comes to bring the true kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that cannot be seen and yet is constantly growing till we reach the full consummation in the words that David read to us earlier. But he moves on from there. He says that not only are we citizens in the kingdom of God, but that we're members of the household of God. And as I reminded you last week, citizenship, it's all about rights. 
and a king, the way that he cares for his people, it's all about responsibilities and loyalty and laws. But when God is our father, we recognize this thing is about love. That he is a father who delights in doing us good. He loves it when we bring back to him the promises that he's made so that he can go into his storehouse and meet us from his endless provision. It's a very different relationship to have the king as your father. And it changes the way that we interact one with each other. You don't necessarily have your heart bound together with all the citizens of this country, but a family. The sense of unity, the, the sense of blood that brings us together. And as I reminded you last week, this bond cannot only be horizontal. Many a church have risen and fallen because their bond was only on the horizontal. The only way we can be a true family of God is if we are tied together because of our union with him. It's only as we are his children that you can be my brother and I, I mean, I'm a brother, brother as well. And then last Sunday night, I brought out that third picture here. And that's that we are living stones in the house itself, the house that God is building. That we are living stones built upon the foundation, as Paul says, of the apostles and the prophets. And that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, they were used in a very peculiar and particular and unrepeatable way. The gospel first entrusted to them, them as eyewitnesses to all that Christ Jesus had done. And then proclaiming that news, recording it for us here so that we hope to be just like that first church that devote ourselves to the apostles teaching. But that the apostles are only good. They only have any value. They're only useful as the foundation of the church insofar as they bring us to the cornerstone. Christ Jesus, that he's the one that gives us our shape, that sets our form, that binds us together. That without Christ Jesus, you don't have a church. He is the precious cornerstone. And we see all throughout this text that we're reading here in verse 21, the very beginning, it says, in whom? That's Christ. At the end of verse 21, it says that we are a holy temple in the Lord. That's Christ. And at the beginning of verse 22, it says, in whom? Again, it's him, it's Christ from start to finish. It's all in Christ. We are built upon Christ. We're held together in Christ. We are growing in Christ. That you can build a lot of things, but without Christ, you're not a church. He is the foundation of the foundation. You skip there. As I told you last Sunday night, you may skimp on paint or countertops or curtains or appliances or anything else, but the foundation must be solid. The whole thing will come tumbling down. And Paul won't let us miss this. That man, again, I say on our own, we can build a lot of things. Men have built a lot of things, beautiful things. Things that have looked in that moment like they were gonna last forever. But if those things aren't built on Christ Jesus as revealed through the apostles, not the Christ Jesus of our own making, not Christ Jesus as we like to think about him. Christ Jesus as he was in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. You can build a lot of things, but it will not be a church. And beyond this, that unless a man himself is bound to Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, he can't be a living stone in the church. He's welcome to hang out in the church. As I told you, we will minister to you. 
The full resources of this church will be at your disposal, but you cannot be a living stone in this church, in the church, if you're not bound to him. It doesn't matter if you can recite every single word that Peter or Paul or James ever said. You're not bound to Christ. You're not the church. But he says it is upon him that we are being built together. And I drew your attention last week. I reminded you of the old King James phrase that's used there. We are being fitly framed together. As living stones, he's got a purpose for each stone that he brings together. There's a, there's a certain shape that is necessary in this spot right here. So as we look around and we don't all look the same. We're not bricks. Bricks are all rectangular. We're stones. You're different. You've got a place, each of you. But he's doing work with you as well. Any of you, as I said last Sunday night, any of you that have ever seen a stonemason do his work, you know there's a lot of chiseling and hammering and shaping and forming. And it is not only messy, but I imagine if the rock could speak, he would tell you it's painful. Now, you won't put up with this if you don't see value in what he's doing. But if you recognize what he's building is the holy temple, the church of God, then you will gladly submit. And you'll be very patient with the others. Because as he's chiseling on you, some of your dust might get on me. The noise of him chiseling on you might be an annoyance to my ears. But if I see what he's doing, and patience and grace and mercy and love and a sense of delight overwhelms, he is working on me. The stones that aren't useful in his temple, he throws away and leaves them just as he found them. But those that are his undergo exactly this kind of work. And then now this morning we come to the crescendo or the climax, the aim, the telos of all that he's been saying here. He says that we are the holy temple, the dwelling place of God. I ask you again, I'm going to read it all together. Just hear, hear the movement now. With all this in your mind, hear the movement and see if your heart doesn't, doesn't swell. You know those musicians that just have that God-given talent. They can, they can rise you up and you feel like you're just higher and higher and higher. See if Paul's words don't do that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We grew up in a day and age when everybody's mama told them they were special. So that every little boy grew up believing that they were going to be president or an astronaut or a major league baseball player. And so some of us grew up with inflated senses of importance, I'm afraid. But then as we grew older, what did Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Who would have ever looked at themselves in the mirror and looked at the whole of their life leading to this moment and honestly said, I believe that I will be a living stone in the temple of the holy God. It takes a miracle to make a Christian. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows. Normally, stones and buildings don't grow. Animals grow. Plants grow, children grow, 
But he says that we are growing and it's made clear that this is an active and a living and a vital thing that's happening here. So there is no, this isn't mechanical, this isn't dead, this isn't static. Not just our relationship to God, but our relationship one to another. He's not done yet. He's not, he's not done building what he's building and there's going to be activity and life pulsating through the whole of his church. There's signs of a dead body can twitch sometimes. You, you put some electricity to it or you hit it with a, with, with a paddle. A dead body can move sometimes, but in a living thing, there's, there's life. And all throughout this word, he's given us pictures of what are the signs of life. What's a church pulsating with the life of the spirit look like? And beloved, I'm telling you, you're seeing it. You're living in it. You're enjoying it. You're being a part of it. There's life all throughout this body. That's the picture here. Our growth and our growing and our coming together. But it, it doesn't separate that growth from his building. It still says there that we're being built together as well. Because he needs to make clear that we are not just, this growth doesn't come from within us. Like it's not just we pop out a baby and then we can get out of the way and the thing grows. He's building it. He's bringing the growth. You can't just gather together a bunch of people who call themselves living stones, step back and watch. And God is not in heaven. He hasn't just put all the saints together like some type of a cosmic ant farm and he's watching to see how this whole thing is going to come together. He's doing the building. He's shaping and bringing the growth. That's the picture. He is growing us into a holy temple that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. We see this, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 3, verse 3, talks about us being God's house. Some of these same analogies get used throughout Scripture. But he says here in Hebrews 3, 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. That in Christ Jesus, God in Christ, his beloved son, that he's the builder and therefore he receives the honor. And this is exactly what Jesus promised he would do. I, I drew your attention last Sunday night to Peter's confession and then Jesus' affirmation. And he said during that very encounter, he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. What we're witnessing here is a work of God. God in Christ Jesus shaping and molding and building and bringing growth. I say to you one more time because it cannot be repeated enough. A man can build a building. A man can gather a crowd. A man can put names on a roll. But only Christ can build his church. There are no other options. And you can imagine the saints in Ephesus as they're sitting there together. People from all walks of life, slave and free, rich and poor. They're sitting there together looking at each other going, don't you know it's true? There's not a powerful enough man on earth that could have brought together something like this thing that Christ is building. And at the same time, we know that it doesn't exclude the work of his servants. Because then he turns around and charges Peter and the boys with what? The Great Commission, go make disciples. Go baptize, go teach that his promise, his building and our work are not in any way 
at odds. There's there's great teaching all throughout this word about being careful the way that we build. Paul himself says, look, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. So I'm going to a new town that there I may lay the foundation of Christ Jesus. He doesn't make Jesus the foundation. But he introduces him as the only foundation. Then he builds upon this foundation. He does real work. Do you people have any idea what the Apostle Paul's body probably looked like at the end of his life? Beaten and starved and snake bitten and shipwrecked and stoned. He had been wrung out and hung up wet. And all the while he knew Christ is the one building his church. So we must see this. We must recognize that it's all of him. And yet at the same time, we're the tools. The God of the universe working through earthen vessels and ordinary means to do this thing. If we don't get this right, then we'll find ourselves in all manner of frustration and confusion or we'll, we'll tend to jump in and want to take the reins and I know how to build something else that will give all the appearances of a church and convince ourselves that we've done God's work. Or on the other end, we become passive. We don't beat our bodies. We don't bring ourselves into submission. We don't come to each other and exhort and encourage and even admonish one another whenever sin has crept in. But I ask you to hear what Paul said. Go home and read your homework for today. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 3. But he's talking about divisions in the church there. And he's, and there's, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. And he says, what then is Apollos or what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe does the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is a truth that runs through the whole of the world, the whole of scripture that you must hold. There's a tension there, but you must hold on to it. You must learn to live in the tension. God's sovereignty never eliminates man's responsibility. You want your children to be saved. More than anything else, you want your children to come to repentant faith in Christ Jesus. And you know they will not come to faith in Christ Jesus unless God has written their name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, you are commanded to train them and teach them and pray for them and bring them into communion with God's people. Those things are not at odds. I don't know how. But they're true because the Bible says they're true. And so we learn to rest in the middle of that tension. As a matter of fact, I submit to you that if you will allow it, you will not only learn to live in this tension, that tension may be the very thing that most drives your worship because you look and say, I can't make these two things make sense, but you can. And so I stand in all of you. I can't walk and chew bubble gum, but in your world, these two things are both true. That's the way the church gets built. Through ordinary means, the preaching, the teaching, the sharing, the exhorting, the praying, the communion, the baptism, through all these works, God is building his church. And I remind you that not only though did he look at Peter and say, Peter, I will build my church after Peter's marvelous confession. But he said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven, 
And then I remind you that he told his disciples, you need to hang out here in Jerusalem for a little bit. Before you go and take this gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and to the Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you need to wait until the one promised by my father comes. Then from start to finish in the preaching, in the receiving, in the confessing, in the building, it is all dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. We need him. And what did I pray earlier? God, you've got to speak through me if anything of value is going to be said, and you've got to give the people ears to hear. That's the picture of God building his church. But so many people, they try to do God's work the world's way. Because sometimes God works more slowly than we wish. Sometimes he works very quickly. He can add 3,000 people in a day if he sees fit. But at the same time, I remind you, that as the church began to grow and they exercised church discipline and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers and the teaching of the apostles, what happened pretty quickly? The people became fearful and would not come near. The more we look like the true church of God, the more holy we become, we will find that many are terrified. But we can become impatient. If we start to keep score the way that the world keeps score, if we keep score based on numbers, based on money, based on butts and seats, based on popularity, we jump in and we build something else. So it's healthy to be reminded. If we're going to be the church, then we've got to be used of him. We've got to do our building in God's way. And God's way is not plug and play. There, there's this whole phenomenon out there of mega churches where I'm telling you it's a science. You take a guy with skinny jeans and a good-looking face. You get the right kind of band, the right kind of atmosphere, and it will, I mean, it's automatic. This is a no-lose proposition. If you were ever looking to invest in something earthly that was promised to bring the exact kind of returns you wanted, it's this. This kind of man in this kind of place with this kind of outreach and this kind of advertising and this kind of music and this kind of audience and you will build a place full of thousands of people. Now, I don't want to ever give you the impression that I think these people believe they're doing evil. They want to honor Christ. I believe it with all my heart. But they've grown impatient of waiting on God to build God's way. with a good heart to reach people for Christ. We want to introduce people to Christ and how are we gonna introduce them to Christ if we can't get them in our building? That's the mindset that comes. But if we're gonna be the true church of Christ, then we wait on him. But then you're dependent on the Holy Spirit. What if he doesn't bring you any more living stones for the next 10 years? We're building his way. We're letting him build his way. And when he does it his way, what happens is you find yourself as living stones in a thing that lasts. How long does it last? 100 years? 200 years? How about eternity? And in fact, you find that it's built in a way that you get the reward and he gets the glory. Where so many men do it, it's the opposite. They get the glory and they die and find there is no reward. So we'll build this thing in a way that God gets all the glory. And we trust that in this there will be great reward for us. So he says, verse 21. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
people in Ephesus, they were very familiar with the idea of a temple. They lived amongst one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, temp the temple to Artemis, or Diana. It's a great temple, magnificent temple right there in their midst. And the, any Jewish believers that were amongst the people there, they too knew. They had the temple in Jerusalem. They knew something about a magnificent edifice, this, this fantastic building built with precious stones. But then you can imagine as the Apostle Paul writes them a letter. And where are they now? Gathered in church houses. Or has this letter made its way and found Christians meeting in catacombs and caves? And they hear this word from the Apostle Paul that says, you are the holy temple of God. Can you imagine the chuckling that went all throughout the room? The laughter. Not laughter at incredulity, laughter at this would be ridiculous if it wasn't true. You're telling me. We can't go into that place because riots start. We can't go back to Jerusalem because they'll kill us. But you're telling us as we're huddled in this little cave, we're the true temple? What a thing. That's exactly what he's saying to them. Now there's, to, to make this point clear, I think there's, there's two Greek words for temple used in the New Testament. One is heron. And that's generally the word that you'll find in the Gospels or that you'll find Jesus using. Remember when he cleansed the temple? That was this word. And it meant, remember, he didn't, he didn't go in the Holy of Holies. He, he went into the, to the, the outer courts, right? The, the whole temple mount there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's typically the word that is used of the temple. But then this word here is naos, this word for temple. And I have had to learn both in Greek and in theology and in marriage and in parenting and in almost every area of life. Things aren't always as cut and dry as you'd like, right? You'd like to just know these are the bad guys, these are the good guys. This is how this word's always used, this is how that word's always used. That's not really the way that it works. But this word, naos, it comes from the word nao, which is a verb meaning to dwell. So it seems as though what he's talking about is the place in the temple where God dwells the Holy of Holies, the true sanctuary. And isn't that where he's been leading us all throughout this? That we not only have access into the very throne room of God, somehow he has come and taken a seat within our hearts. We ourselves are this temple, this inner sanctuary, this holy place, the place of his blessed presence. Now we've talked often throughout this as we've been wrestling through the difference between Jews and Gentiles and this dividing wall coming down and all the rest, we've talked quite a bit about Solomon's temple and about, about the way that God had constructed this whole thing. And I've, and I've told you on several occasions that I think sometimes these Old Testament pictures can be very helpful for us for understanding the New Testament reality that they pointed to. That's the value in pictures, right? You, whenever you're gonna build something, oftentimes there's a picture there that may be very rudimentary and two-dimensional and it's not the real thing, but it's helpful to understand what the real thing is. And so you, you've seen as we've talked through the reality that you had the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of the Jews, and then the court of the priests, and then you're moving. 
You're moving closer to God with every step. And with every step inward in the temple, not only is there a restriction on who is allowed to come in, but there's also an increase in the preciousness of the materials. And that you're moving inward until you get to this very centerpiece. The Holy of Holies, the true sanctuary where God dwells with his people. And if we go back even further, though, you don't have to stop at Solomon's temple. You can go back even further to the to the very shadows of this scene in the in the creation story. What was God's purpose in creating? I've said to you often that God's purpose is that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. But I think it can also be said that God's purpose for creating us is that we would glorify him as we live in communion with him. What does it mean to enjoy God, if not to live with him, to dwell with him, to be in his blessed presence? And so many theologians have, I don't have time to break it all down for you this morning, but many theologians, they have rightly looked to the story of Eden and they have seen there the first shadows of the temple. The first pictures of a tabernacle. I'll I'll just draw out a couple of texts for you. Psalm 104, verse 1 through 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says, the Lord stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a twin, like a tent to dwell in. Psalm 29 talks about God seated on his throne over all things. He talks about roaring rivers and heavenly beings and does and fawns and all kinds of animals. And what he says there in the middle of this is, and all his temple cry, Glory. So it seems very clear to me that what he's building here, what he has stretched out with the heavens and what he has built below, it very much is a picture of the tabernacle, a place where God could dwell with his people. And then as you read through the creation story and you think about the creation of light and then you flip over and you find the creation of the the, the luminaries in the sky. The sun, the moon, the stars, and you see the creation of sky and water and you flip over and you see as he fills that with birds and fish. And then you see the creation of dry land and you see the creation of beasts and man. But that the whole thing is funneling us towards something. He's creating a space. He's filling the space. And what's the crescendo of the whole thing? Not just the creation of man. But the creation of man resting in his presence on this blessed Sabbath day. He's creating a tabernacle. He's creating a temple. He's creating a place where his people can commune and rest and worship him. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. It's not just that we are meant to go forth and subdue and have dominion over creation, although that's true. But what's the purpose? Like, what's the plan? Why does he care that we go and subdue the rest of the earth outside of this Garden of Eden? It's because he wants us to extend Eden. His commandment to Adam and Eve was, go make the rest of this place like this tabernacle that you now dwell in. As you spread my glory to the ends of the earth, bearing my image, you're not just raising up a bunch of little image bearers, you're teaching them to come to me. You're teaching them to commune with me. And I've given you the whole of this world as a place to enjoy that. We see it at the end of the story, don't we? God's people enjoying his good gifts. Hearing his words of assurance, resting in his promise. As we see this picture of the tabernacle, we see the the fruition of it all in the text that David read earlier for us. I almost called you King David, David. You are not King David. 
that David read for us earlier. Isn't that it? He said that there was no temple there. Why was there no temple? Because the whole thing was a temple. There was a place where there was no uncleanliness and no death and no disease and no sorrow and no sadness and no sin and man ate freely of God's fruit. What's it sound like? That's the way this whole thing has been moving from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. That's the picture. Now we know what happened. Adam and Eve, they fell. They rebelled. They rejected. It really it was just disordered worship was what it was all about, wasn't it? And with that, they were cast from the Garden of Eden. I don't need to recount all this to you, but you know, they were cast east of the garden. There, the cherubim were placed as a protection that they would not trespass and come back into the presence of God in some unholy way and be slaughtered for themselves. They were cut off from the tree of life. And as we see the degradation that follows after that, it's a downward spiral. We see the picture of Cain and Abel, those first brothers, and they're offering some kind of sacrifices to God. And my Hebrew is weaker than my Greek, but Hebrew experts say it seems very likely that they were coming and offering these gifts at the gate to the Garden of Eden. It's almost as though they were trying to come back. They're coming to the place where they knew that God dwelled, and there they were offering their sacrifices. But we know that Cain came in an unworthy manner, that he himself was found to be unworthy. He takes the life of his brother, and where is he cast? Not just out of the garden, out of Eden, east of Eden. And what does he do? He builds a city for himself. When men can't build things God's way, they build them on their own. We see as the degradation continues and sin only encompasses the earth to the point that God says, I repent that I've made man. He floods the whole thing. And yet knowing this can't deal with the hearts of men and the sin continues. And so what does man do? They build a tower for themselves. Instead of scattering and taking the glory of God to the ends of the earth, they huddle and build a name for themselves. And so the question continues to resound, how will man ever come into right communion with God again? How will man ever come into the blessed presence of God again? I said I had one piece of homework. I have two pieces of homework. There's a book called Who Will Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? What is that guy's name? It's the same initial twice. It's like Mike Morales, I think. Who Will Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? It's a, it's a commentary on the book of Leviticus, but it reads beautifully. Because that's the question. Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who's going to go for us? Because we can't go. We're unclean. We're unholy. We're unrighteous. He'll surely destroy us. So how will we ever get back into the presence of God? That's the question until God comes and he calls a man called Abram. He calls this man. He says, come to this place and I will make of you a great nation and I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will lead you into a land that's been prepared. But you must leave the world behind. And then we know in the calling of Israel from slavery, what was his commandment? So many people, they hear the Exodus story, and if you're not careful, you think the whole thing is just about not being slaves anymore. And then all of a sudden you have this social justice gospel that's about nothing other than dealing with injustice in the world. That's not the story. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come and worship me. Let them go, they may come out into the wilderness and be my people. And the question still has to remain, though, but how? How are we going to worship you? 
We're, we're the same people. We're grumbling and we're stiff-necked and we're stupid. And our affections are still disordered to the point that even as we're out here eating from your hand, we're talking like we were eating steak and lobster back in slavery. We refer to Egypt like it was the good old days. And so God calls his people to a mountain and this mountain itself looking like a picture of the temple. Surely you see the shadows of this. What happened at that mountain? Israel, don't touch the mountain or you will die. But Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders, they could come up partway. But only one, only Moses could come as God descended upon that place with great cloud and thunder and shouting and trumpets and sounds and the people shake. But Moses could go. He was their one intercessor that could come and meet with God. And so surely you begin to see the picture here. But it wasn't just the temple, the, the mountain itself. that was a picture of this dwelling with God. He gave him detailed instructions then for a tabernacle. He said, you can't stay at this mountain. You got to move. And they said, well, how are you going to go with us? Because while I'm up here on the mountain, those Nimrods are down there having a feast, a festival, the most raucous worship service in the history of the world to a cow. So how are you going to go with us and not destroy us, God? He said, you're going to build this tabernacle. And as you listen and you think about the pictures of the tabernacle, you immediately are carried back to Eden. The menorah representing the, uh, the tree of life. The table, showbread, representing the communion with God. The whole thing stretched out like the heavens above. And yes, sadly, the need for a veil. With cherubim sewed into it, a clear sign of their sin. But there was an allowance there, even for that, as there's an altar there where man can make sacrifices. Man can spill blood in the atonement for their sins. And so because of that, there's also fellowship meals. It wasn't all burnt offerings. It wasn't all sin offerings. There was opportunity for you to come and say, I'm so thankful for the forgiveness that I already have. That I come and break this bread now in your presence. You don't eat with enemies. God says you can come to my house and you can eat. And then eventually we know that the temple comes. As he leads them into that place and he gives them something much more permanent. And, this, and we know that the, the glory of God, it descended not only upon the mountain, not only upon the tabernacle, but upon that temple. And we know that this was a sight for all the world. Do you remember what Rahab said to Joshua and the spies as they came in? They, she said, I, I know that there's a living God and that he's with you. We've seen it, not just in the way he makes war, but in the cloud and the pillar and everything we've seen coming with you. We've heard of you and we tremble. This is a picture of what he's doing, not just doing a thing for us, but reflecting something to the rest of the world. The rest of the world ought to look at this place and say, there's a God there. I've got much more to say, but I, I will end with this as we move together to the table. As you, as you study through this story of the temple and the tabernacle and the, 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 the places where God comes to his people and you think about what he's doing there. You think about the end of the story. You think about where the whole thing first began. You can't help but be overwhelmed with a sense of the reality that what we have here is the transcendent God coming imminently. That this is the one place in all the world where sinful men can interact with heaven. That's the picture in Revelation 21. It's heaven and earth coming as one, isn't it? So that if we are that temple, 
If we are those who can enjoy this inauguration of the kingdom, can enjoy this, this inaugural phase of what God is ultimately going to do, then we can be a people that when we gather together just like this, we can see ourselves as the people of Israel. Saying we, we still struggle with our sin and we still are weak and we still are prone to wander and to turn back. But it's in this place as the people of God gather together that heaven opens up and God comes. And I think we see a beautiful picture of this in the, in the life of Jacob. We, we, we get these shadows, not just, in the, not just in the mountain, not just in the tabernacle, not just in the temple. But we get these other one-offs, right? You think about the burning bush and what did God say to Moses? Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. But you think about Jacob as he fell asleep one night. And what did he see? He saw a ladder going up into heaven with angels ascending and descending. And he saw the Lord standing there at the top. And he said when he woke up, surely, this, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Did any of those things cross your mind when you were getting ready for bed last night? Sadly, they don't mind. I can get so busy with getting a sermon prepared or making sure things are in order here in the church house or spending time with my wife and my children. And then when you woke up this morning and you were picking out some clothes and brushing your teeth and driving in your car, did you have any understanding of the weight about the thing that you were coming to do? The privilege and the honor of what we do in this place as we gather. As we come together and break bread in the presence of God. Recognizing who our intercessor and our lamb and our sacrifice was that purchased our right to come and sit in this place. As you recognize that this is a representation of what it means when heaven and earth become one. An earthly people meeting in the presence of their heavenly God. Or it might be more right to say that in some sense, we are swept up into the heavenly places. Isn't that more like Paul's language? So that in accordance with the words that I read at the beginning of worship, we gather here in this place. And I, I lamented a bit this much. I missed the faces that weren't here because they're on the road to Falls Creek. I was, I was sad that they weren't here in their usual pews. But we do well to remember that as we gather, we're not just gathered with them in a very real sense, even as they go. But we are gathered together with innumerable angels and with righteous saints that are already made holy with God himself so my prayer for us as a people having walked through all of this together having considered all that God is doing in building this thing called, called the church I pray that if nothing else if you got nothing else out of all these weeks us considering who we are as a people that you recognize that we are the people in whom God dwells and yes, individually, each of us are temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that as well. But that every time we gather together, gather together, there is a particular and a peculiar way in which God comes. In which he dwells. In which we commune with him. In which we, in which we enjoy his infinite blessings. And if we're going to do this, we do this as a holy people. Clean hands, clean hearts. Striving for true holiness. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for the true and ultimate picture of the temple. 
your Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is he that said you will tear down this temple, but in three days it will rise again. It is he who predicted that the temple itself, that physical temple in Jerusalem, would be destroyed because no longer does man come to any particular place to meet with God. They come to a person, to the cornerstone, to Christ. That he is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the place where man can come and dwell in the presence of God. And so we praise you that the word came and tabernacled among us. And then we thank you, Father, that just as he promised, after ascending to the Father's right hand, he sent forth that same spirit that he would come and indwell us. So help us to have that sense of weight as we go about the rest of our service this morning. Help us to feel the gravity and the holiness and the heavenliness of what we're doing. Father, again, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.